you're changing your entire mindset. I think being in, in a, a military unit that you know is any sort of chance to go into war has been in war. You have to take yourself into a combat mindset that sort of protects you, and you're there thinking that you might die. You're there ready to do violent things to other people. You're there just sort of in this living in this this place that's quite severe. I remember starting to actually come out of the combat mindset where all of a sudden I was like, it seems really dangerous and scary to just to go run into some bad person's house that has a gun trying to shoot you. Whereas before that was like a non-issue to me. And I realized at that moment that the work that was happening at the individual level was starting to process what you were before in order to survive and how you navigated from that waypoint to the next waypoint up the mountain that was sort of coming out of that to see the world in a different way so that you could start to integrate into civilian life. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. The most recent census reported 7% of the U.S. population are veterans. That's about 18 million people who served in the active military, naval, or air service at some point and have since been discharged. Transitioning to civilian life is a common topic for veterans when leaving the military. We get into that today with our guest, Matt Lewis. Matt is the chief operating officer of a spatial data company valued at almost a half a billion dollars. Matt is also a Navy SEAL with deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan under his belt. As you heard in the opening, Matt changed his entire mindset as part of his transition to civilian life. We'll hear about this journey and the importance of seeking challenges in life, including some of his own. Along the way, he's discovered that happiness comes through experiencing discomfort. That juxtaposition is key, he says. Matt's a deep thinker, and I found the insights he shared are applicable to not only veterans, but people from all walks of life. I hope you enjoy this conversation between Eric Weinmayer and Matt Lewis. I'm producer Diedrich Jonk, and this is the No Barriers Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the No Barriers Podcast. It's Eric Weinmayer, and I'm going solo today. I'm interviewing Matt today. Hey, Matt. Good morning. And... Uh, you and I met at a Hover conference. That's the company you work at, and uh, I'm just flying right in here. You were a Navy SEAL, and now you're an executive at Hover, and we had a great conversation, and so I thought you'd be a perfect uh, candidate to, to interview today because you have a lot of great insights on you know, other topics, but in particular, just the difficult transition from military to corporate life and uh, you've lived that experience, and 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 I even asked you. I said, "What was that transition like?" And you said, "Wow, it was really hard." And that just got me thinking. You know, our community needs to hear from you, and some of your thoughts and opinions and so forth. So, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm really uh, honored to be here and talk with you today. Yeah, awesome. You just got back from uh, jujitsu, huh? And so, so now <laughs> that your right. life isn't as physical, like you know. Being a Navy SEAL, which is, I can't imagine, it's a very physical thing you're doing every day. Um, like now you're a corporate guy and you're sitting on your butt more. Um, how do you blow off steam? Like how, what's your hobbies to to stay physical and, you know, have goals beyond the corporate world? That's yeah, a great, a great question. Um, I sort of found myself post-military um uh, you know, you kind of feel like when you get in the corporate world, you're a little bit behind and you're trying to play catch up. So I sort of thought that the the ticket to success was just to work all the time. I was working on the weekends. I was working 
12 hour days, if not longer, just to sort of prove that, you know, I belonged and, and trying to catch up. And I was, right. I was in terrible shape. Um, and I, I remember at one point from sitting down, just like all my muscles were starting to kind of go, um, my back was really bothering me. And I went by, I went to the doctor and they were like, Hey, you know, from your time in the military and all the sports you've done in your life, it looks like your vertebrae are, are worn out and you're probably going to get back surgery. And, uh, I remember I, I walked by, uh, health Gracie's jujitsu in San Francisco every day on the way to work. And, there, and it's, it's all windows. It's on Howard Street. And they were just always fogged out. And you could just kind of see through the, the glass, like people sparring and wrestling with each other. And I remember thinking, man, that looks really hard and really fun. And I, I had not done jujitsu um, before that. It wasn't really in the military. They had different types of combatives there. But instead of getting surgery, I decided to just go the opposite direction. <laughs> I was like, maybe I just need to get stronger. And like, you know, this sport looks really hard. And Hey, if I think it's surgery anyways, why not try it? And I walked in and I met the head instructor, Kurt Osiander, um, who's a bit of a legend and also has been really active in the veteran community. And I told him, yeah, as the military, I'd never trained. And from that day on, I've been, I've been addicted to it. And I think that in a good way, I think that it, it provides not only physical activity to blow off stress, but in a short period of time, you get a community that I work in tech. So my bubble is tech, but I get a cross section of jujitsu of, all kinds of people. You, get, you didn't um, come in there like John Claude Van Damme and like kicking butt with your uh, military <laughs> uh, experience. Just I I was I was aggressive, but I quickly learned that is not what what wins in uh, jujitsu. It's a lot more technique. I mean, the whole sport was developed by a, a gentleman in Brazilian jujitsu specifically. He was pretty small and and figured out ways to use leverage against larger opponents. So yeah, I was uh, I walked in there and quickly learned the the you know value of humility and uh, <laughs> but i've been doing it ever since and and you know to finish the thought on i mean it was it was community and there's a mastery of a craft and i think that's an important thing too that you know when you're in the military you are in a craft and you do that in work to some extent too but physical activity community exercise and then and then also this sort of mastering of a craft which takes you into this sort of meditative state like you can't think about anything when you're doing jiu-jitsu you can only think about that moment. And I think that's a theme for me and a lot of the things I do. I, do, I surf jujitsu. I play chess, um, time chess or so blitz chess. And it, it's just sort of like a, a way to break my mind away from uh, the stress of everyday life. And you do some fun uh, experiences each summer with your, with your Navy SEAL friends. Uh, like you guys go hiking and camping and you guys are even talking, I think about, uh, uh, doing the Baja 1000 or is that a secret? Sorry. <laughs> well, we got, now we it's not talk a secret, the, we, Matt. Sorry. We got to talk to the wives about it, but yeah, there is uh, <laughs> it's out now, I guess. Um, you know, we, we, we're, we're trying to find reasons to get back together. And I think the, the bonds of, um, military are, are run deep and they're strong and they're important to nurture them as well. I think a lot of times you'll hear about people getting out and, um, losing touch with folks. And I would encourage other veterans to try to keep the, the networks there and the connections there. They're really important. Um, you know, we get together and it's funny. We literally tell the same 25 stories over and over again, but they're as funny every time we tell them. Right. Um, but we, we, we do something every year that usually is incredibly challenging for a novice. And we're usually novices in those things. So the Baja 1000 is an example where none of us have raced, you know, trucks in the desert. Uh, but there's a, this, the idea of being a beginner in that and the amount of work that would go into planning and preparing it gives you purpose. It connects you. And I think there's something really hard about it as well. We did, a uh, ice climbing in Rainier. I was talking to you about that before the show and also something that none of us are really experienced in ice climbing specifically. We've done some dabbling and climbing, but, um, the idea is to push yourself out of your comfort zone. And I have a belief that ultimately happiness comes from experiencing discomfort. It's the juxtaposition of discomfort. And um, you need to keep challenging yourself. And especially when you've been in the military, if you were there seeking challenge and adventure and sort of service, um, sort of finding those opportunities to recreate that outside are hard. But I think putting yourself in challenging situations is part of it. Awesome. And maybe this isn't like the best thing to start with because I don't want this to be negative at all, but 
what you just mentioned, like you hang out with these buddies and you guys have this incredible connection that most people don't experience, right? So it's easy and comfortable and, and you can kind of read each other's thoughts a little bit and so forth. So as now talking to civilians and trying to communicate with civilians, are there things that are difficult, like where you have to speak differently or you have to, you know, maybe even things that like irritate you, like where you're like, you just don't get it, man. Are there, are there situations in that way? It's so interesting. I think there were, there were in the initial part of getting out, there was a lot of that. And I, and I can kind of explain why part of the success of any team is having a shared mental model of the world and in the seal teams sort of their core thesis is that we can be a small group as a fighting force and be very effective because we're going to be the best team and with that you don't really need to say things you can kind of just know what people are thinking how they're going to react to situations because part of its training and part of its culture and you sort of get into this mental model that's so different than what the civilian world lives in every day. And when you get out, you're sort of talking to people and you're like, this person sounds like an alien, but they're just a normal right. person on the street because you're so ingrained in this unit. That's job is to be an effective fighting force in a war. And that's just not, you know, you're going to Starbucks, you're talking to someone and they're just like kind of having a conversation with you and just looking at them like, what are you talking about? Right. Um, and then as you start to transition out, you start to realize that that is a perspective and a shared mental model that you held, but your mental model will start to change about how you see the world um, as you move forward. Interesting. Yeah, I would imagine that like some of the discussions that you might, and again, I'm assuming here, which, because I don't know, but like some of the discussions that you might have with civilians, you might think like, God, this is kind of frivolous. This doesn't seem that important, you know, like the, the that's right the problems right. that people are experiencing and so forth. I didn't get my latte hot <laughs> enough or. <laughs> That's right. There, there's yeah. a, the, the best I've ever seen it captured. Um, I can't remember the movie. Um, it's drawn, drawn a blank on it now. It's about e, the EOD gentleman over in the middle East. And it's the whole, the whole movie is him in the middle East in war. Um, I can't remember the name right now, but I'll just get the story is more important. So, you're kind of watching him through this world of like trying to disarm bombs overseas and in really intense environments and hurt locker. Hurt locker. Yeah. The hurt locker. I was trying and, to remember it as yeah. well alongside you. I was going to yeah. say the meat locker or something. <laughs> hurt locker. Right. <laughs> That's right. And the last scene, it's like the whole movie is him in the middle East and war, you know, the struggles, the stress, just the grittiness of that. And then it just, clicks over to him in a grocery store, walking through the aisle, looking at cereal and the consumerism of it and the juxtaposition of what you've just watched. I thought was, was just such a really powerful way to capture that experience of exactly what you're saying. It's sort of like, I'm thinking about life or death and my friend's life or death. And now there's this other world of folks thinking about, you know, what, I'm, what, what's my Starbucks latte going to have whip or no whip today? And this sort of seems silly. Tell me about your role at Hover. Um, what do you do? I think you're the COO, right? So um, yeah. give us like the little elevator pitch of Hover because you guys are a fascinating company doing a really important uh, job. Well, the company, I'll start there. It, it is a fascinating company. So we found a, an application for computer vision. That's uh, taking photos and reconstructing some sort of digital digital uh, twin of that. And we, we, you can take out your phone, you can take eight photos of any property, your house, a building, and we will generate an accurate 3d interactive 3d model with um, structured data. So that's all the measurements of the property. So you can think about from that two real applications. I want to do a home improvement project and I want to see what it's going to look like. I can use hover scan my home and then actually start manipulating it and see what it would look like with accurate measurements. And with that data, then you can run that into getting a cost. So you can actually understand what it costs and why. And we think about when homeowners are looking to do projects, you know, you, if you're a homeowner, you'll know, like, it's sort of like, well, what's this going to look like when it's done? And then how much is it going to cost? And we're sort of using this computer vision technology to create this structured data that then allows both of those things to unlock. So we're, um, we're scanning a home every three seconds in the United States right now, homeowners and, and professionals, whether it be uh, home improvement professionals or insurance carriers, scanning a home every three seconds. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of 
growing really fast right now. We're based in San Francisco, but we have offices in New York and uh, little hubs in, in sort of Nashville and Austin, Texas, and kind of all over now with the remote work thing. And I'm, I'm the COO, so I oversee pretty much all of the non, all of the business functions, so everything that's not engineering, product, or design. So um, all the ways in which we basically make money. Uh, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. I think in the tech space, it's really good sort of exercise of leadership and sort of strategy and systems thinking and um, yeah. So we'll focus on some of the differences and so forth. But like when I hear you describe that, at at least from an outside perspective, it sounds wildly different from what I would imagine life as a Navy SEAL. Uh, But are there overlaps? Are there things that do translate really well? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So coming out of the SEAL teams, I remember I was interviewing with people and they were sort of like asking me, what's your view on leadership and all these like basic questions. And I just remember sitting there, I had no idea what I was talking about. And it wasn't because <laughs> I, I, I didn't know anything about like leadership or teams. It was that I hadn't really reflected on like, what was I doing in the teams that was so special and unique. And it's funny as I get more senior in organizations, um, I see the connection points and I see the importance of some of the things I learned there. I think at the start of it, I won't, I will, I'll say the team thing for a second here, but startups were interesting in that their culture actually was somewhat similar to the SEAL teams. I think there was this sort of like, this might come off the wrong way, but SEALs were a specific unit in the military that was supposed to be sort of like counter to big military. They're a small team. They need people to be free thinkers. They actually didn't want people to join who were previously in the military because, um, sort of the tops down nature of those things sort of sort of um you know there's a free thinking element they want you to have so they want people to come right in and they want to build a mold them right from there and they they they're sort of the whole idea is like think unconventional if you're not cheating you're not trying there are no rules right like you, you, you have to be creative to win and a lot of the and i'll interrupt because by the want, way i climb with this friend of mine who is in special forces he's a marine he's a badass ice climber and he said when the marines same thing like he would he was he, he him and all his friends, you know, in his unit were like had beards and long hair and they were like the cool guys and they're looking, you know, yeah, and they right. were kind yeah. of felt like a little bit separate from from uh, from the other Marines. That's right. And that, that's yeah. intentional. They want them to feel like a little bit separate. I think part of it is you have to be creative to win in those situations in your small groups. But then they actually the military is an interesting thing. I don't know if people know about this, but the SEAL teams did a great job marketing themselves in the 80s. But they weren't winning all the best missions in even the t- early 2000s. In fact, you know the military is mostly run in land wars by the Marines and the Army, mostly the Army. And they're like, "Why are we going to let the SEALs come in here? These guys, what are they on? They're supposed to be on ships. Why are they here?" And the SEALs were like, "Well, we want to help out too, you know." And it actually became a competitive thing. And they would look at mission statistics, they would look at um, success rates, you know, uh, just all kinds of different data points to, to see who would actually be given sort of top tier missions. So the SEALs by nature were looking for creative people to sort of sort of build into that. I think from that you get them, you have long hair, the beards, they wear civilian clothing. Um, and then you think about startup land, a lot of these companies were sort of founded on their like, we're not your, you know, mom and dad's General Electric. We're gonna do things different. We're gonna wear whatever we want to work. We're gonna have beer and alcohol in here. We're gonna let people, you know, think more freely. They have 10% time to do whatever they want. You're not the company man or woman, you're, you're a free thinker. So I was drawn to Silicon Valley because I saw a parallel there just at that like cultural level of just feeling like we have to be different to win because if we're not different, we're not going to be the people that do everything the same way, right? So that was interesting to me. And then I think another element to it was just <laughs> startups are really hard and there's a shifting landscape of macro environments right now. There's sort of a tech crash happening. That's a totally different landscape I haven't been through before and it's been very interesting to be on the inside of that at an executive level. There's sort of competition. There's resources, resource decisions you have to make. And um, I felt like being on a small team that was trying to figure out how to win in a, in a sort of a, a mission, but where everything was changing around you and there was a very dynamic environment as a leader would translate really well in Silicon Valley. And I think I think it it has in the tech in general. There's a lot of chaos in creating clarity from ambiguity is a pretty important thing that I do every day here. And it was a really sort of natural thing that you started to learn as a SEAL. How do I, okay, this is a messy situation. There's all these things that just happened in this mission. How do we problem solve around it? 
um, there was that movie Zero Dark Thirty that showed the bin Laden raid. Everyone was like, was it really that messy? And it's like, that's that wasn't actually that bad. And <laughs> these missions, you know, right. everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face, right? As Mike Tyson right. always says. And um, <laughs> sort of sort of that dynamic ability to change and think on your feet, I think, is a big part of what it takes to be successful in a, in a tech company. Mm, fascinating. So what was your life like? What was What did the daily life of a Navy SEAL look like for you? before you you joined hover i well, mean for the, the stuff first... you're, you can talk about comfortably <laughs> yeah all the, all the secret things we'll, we'll leave out no you know i think it's interesting when you think about navy seals you think about it stands for sea airland that's the acronym and you're jumping out of planes you're diving you're you know you're, you're going through mountains and stuff but i think a lot of times people focus on like Oh, there was a raid. They went into a house. They got a bad guy. They raised, they saved a hostage. They they took out some pirates on a ship. But the the reality is, ninety eight percent of every mission is getting there safely, and sometimes that can be really hard. And that's why the sea, air, land part comes into play. We spent a ton of time just practicing getting there, um, and you know, a lot of time in the actual action of the mission. But a lot of the the work sort of mirrored that. We would do trainings all over the U.S., the world, for that matter, practicing diving, practicing long-range navigation, practicing, you know, driving in Humvees for hundreds of miles and, you know, stocking up on people and things like that. And it, it's interesting just that it wasn't as action-packed as you'd think in terms of just running around shooting guns all the time. You were spending a lot of your time and jumping out of planes and forgot that. And you were spending a lot of your time practicing getting there safely. Um, so a lot of the a lot of it was training. You were traveling you know, 300 days a year, basically, um, really hard life to have a family. And then that was sort of pre-deployment. And then you would deploy and we do six, seven month deployments. And, um, you know, I was in during sort of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and, uh, spent, spent, you know, most of my time in the middle East during those, those periods of time. And you kind of come back and you're, you're back to training again. Um, or trying to go on trips and go actually go, go back out in the theater. The training part makes so much sense. I mean, as a climber, like, yeah, I mean, you, you got to practice this stuff to, to till it's built into your nervous system because you're trying to reduce conscious thought, right? Like when you're in the that's right, that's when right. You're in this serious situation, right? Yeah, it's, you're uh, you're only going to do what you've been trained to do. Muscle memory will take over everything. The whole idea of people running around shooting guns with like each arm sideways and stuff—it's not real. Um, <laughs> right, it's not real. What, what, why did you join? Like, what was your motivation as a little kid? Did you dream about being in the military or? No. Yeah, no. I didn't. Um, I, I think about this a lot. I think, um, I don't know if there's an exact answer. I think that I, it, part of it was, I was trying to prove to myself that I had what it, what, what it, you know, took to be a Navy SEAL because I just, by nature, I'm a person that seeks out challenges and finding ways to put myself in really, really hard situations to have a sense of accomplishment. I think part of it was, you know, my dad had a pretty hard upbringing and um, he was a great, great father, but I always felt like, um, you know, I never really measured up to him in some ways because of how hard his upbringing was. And it, it was important to me to prove that I, you know, was tough like he was. I think another part of it was just the draw of the team and the adventure, right? And I, I was sort of looking at my options when I was graduating college, getting out, and I'd actually done an internship with a guy who um, I didn't know was a Navy SEAL at the time. And at the end of the internship, he sort of asked me, hey, what are you thinking about doing? And I'm like, well, you know, this is a great job, obviously, but I've also been looking at the military. And he's like, oh, what, what, do, you, what do you think you're looking at in the military? And I'm like, God, I always wanted, you know, kind of thought it'd be cool to be a Navy SEAL. And I swam in college, maybe I can be good at the swimming part of it, which would give me a leg up. And he was like, I was a Navy SEAL. Like, no. <laughs> I was like, yeah. So we, we kind of ended the conversation about work and we talked more about that. And he told me just the stories of the camaraderie and lessons he learned and how it helped him now in the work environment. And I was like, I'm sold. I'm doing <laughs> this. Well, I think that's all that's fascinating, but like it's really interesting, the dynamic with your family. Like, I mean, so maybe dad says like, Hey, you know, you're not tough enough or, you know, you're not going to amount to anything. I'm not saying that's what your dad said, but yeah. you know, it kind of gives you this fire inside to, you know, Hey, I, I want to find out whether I can surpass that. 
I guess. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. It was. I mean, um, I've heard that story before. That you know, from vets that we work with at No Barriers, that you know, the kind of the the motivation came at a young age. You know, with sort of with their family. You know, like can I can I stack up with the toughest job on earth? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. What? So, what, were you when you got into the military and you became a SEAL? Was it your job to stay there uh, as a career? Or were you planning to get out? And so, like, what were your goals, you know, during and then after? I I I had a I had a rough plan. I I kind of thought when I got in that I I wouldn't stay forever. And the reason I had sort of decided that before I even got in was just the intensity of the job. And my nature is sort of to try as many things as I possibly can in life before I die. And I felt like this would be an incredible experience, a way to like hypercharge life experience, but it wasn't the final stop for me. But at the same time, you know, I kind of live by the the principles of OODA looping, which is sort of comes from the, the Top Gun pilot organization. They everyone was practicing formations in flight and they were doing the observe, orient, decide, and act, which is basically just react to the opponent and react to the situation. I think there's a lot there. You can set plans and have a vision that you're working towards. And that's really important, but sometimes you have to do the loop. There's new information. There's new situations that present themselves and you have to react. So I was sort of like, yeah, probably not going to stay in, but Hey, if this is, this is the thing for me, like I'm not, not discounting that, but I got in, I, I experienced what I wanted to experience. And I felt like, I, got, I was in for six years that it was time to start on that, the next chapter of my life. But it was an absolutely just tremendous experience in, in the most positive way. Hmm. And when you decided to get out, just focus on your emotional state. What what was your emotional state? I mean, not the intellectual thoughts and the plans, but, you know, what were you feeling at that time? Was it overwhelming or was were you feeling pretty secure? So... There's actually a nuance to the story, but it's it's a it's a fun one to tell. So, I getting out myself and two friends um, convinced some people to give us some money to do some real estate house flipping during sort of the height of the market in the before the '09 crash. We were flipping some homes, making a bunch of money. So I got out feeling pretty good. I'm like, I'm working with my buddies. I got a bunch of money. We're flipping homes. We're making money, and then we promptly lost every single dollar oh, no. in the '09. Every everything. And then, then I was like, oh, I, I have no money. I'm like out of a job. And I remember going around trying to convince people in real estate to give me a job. Look, I, I just did that. I raised this money. I just flipping these houses. They're like, dude, I don't even know if I'm going to have a job tomorrow. These are like corporate, you know, commercial real estate companies. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, this is, this is really scary and, um, lonely, scared, overwhelmed, um, it's just a completely different environment. And, and were you, know, you the, married at that point or, or were you still single? <laughs> so I, I, I met my wife, um, my last appointment, I got hurt, I had to come yeah. back at surgery, met her at a new year's party. We kept in touch. I, as I was getting out, we were still, you know, together and I was doing the house flipping thing and then that crashed. And, um, she ended up letting me move in with her and, you know, she's probably like, oh, what have I done? This guy is such a loser. <laughs> like, you know, he's like, hey. you know, no, no money, just living off me right now. No, is he going to get a job? Like, what's going on here? Um, and, you know, you had this blanket in the military, no matter how bad things got at your team. And now I didn't, I didn't have a team anymore except for really her. Um, right. She was sort that of That must my, have been hard on her, actually. Yeah, it was really hard. We, we weren't married yet either. So, you know, I think she... I guess she just saw something and was like, I know this guy's in a rough spot right now, but I'm going to, I'm going to stick with him on this and see if we can get through this. And Mm. she helped me. She, I was in, we were in the Washington DC area and she helped me kind of network to get my, my first job. Oh, wow. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. It was, um, I, I, I remember it was, it was an important decision in my life. There was, a lot of opportunities to go and do defense contracting. This is like when kind of the Blackwater type companies were paying people a thousand dollars a day to go do mercenary work and you have no money. You're sort of wondering what you're going to do with your career. And those jobs are coming at you left and right. I remember thinking, I just, I can't, I can't go this path. It's just not, it's not the right path. I need to go back and I'd rather start from the bottom somewhere else than go and 
jump into one of those jobs. And uh, I ended up starting in a small company called Acumen Solutions in DC, making as I was starting next to new grads, which isn't the first time I've started a company next to new grads, even after having an MBA. That's a whole other story. But I was starting with new grads. Um, I was the same level as them. And I, I, I sort of bet on myself. I said, this is, this is a business. They're, they're, they're in the business of making money, not shooting guns. And I'll, I can bet on myself here to, to find a way to be successful. And it was the best decision I ever made. Not going the other path. Is that business still happening or? Acumen Solutions? Yes. It is. Yeah, they, they actually, um, they had, it was good, good, good sort of um, lesson for me in company culture. They had a great culture. They were a consulting company in D.C. competing against the big ones like Accenture and Deloitte, but they were small. Right. They were growing fast, though, because they were able to get great people to join, and they just got purchased by Salesforce. And it's the oh, wow. only services company Salesforce has ever purchased. They had a whole thing for many years. They didn't. They didn't want to purchase companies that installed their software. They're like, "Hey, we're not a services business. Right. Let these other companies do our software implementations." But they bought them, and I, I think a big part of that was their culture. I mean, they've set a great company yeah. culture. So cool, Matt. So tell me, like, when you're, when we're talking about like the community of veterans, and again, I know it's not like one single kind of person, but the veteran community transitioning into the corporate world, you know, not going back into defense contracting or like the stuff you talked about. Would you call it a, a mild problem, uh, like a crisis? Like where where is it? How are we doing? And just helping veterans transition, how are we doing? Uh, yeah, like how, how well is it happening? Do you see a lot of veterans in executive positions in corporate America? Like it, is there networking like uh, or do you go, wow, like why aren't there more of me out there yeah. making yep. this transition? <laughs> I think it's getting a lot better. I don't think we're there yet. And I think here's here's what I'm seeing. This has been the evolution in this. And this is um, it's a personal topic for me. So I'll try to hold it together in this one. But when I got out there actually wasn't even a lot of awareness about Navy SEALs. I think since then, a lot of guys written books, there's been movies about it, but that was just one dimension of it. This in general, the military, I think there was just an entirely like some preconceived notions and there weren't the right avenues. I think they, they sort of started with, um, a lot of structural stuff initially. Like they're like, Hey, we need to have veteran programs and like help veterans get in veteran career days. And it was, I've heard this concept of like, thinking about human systems and people through the I, the we, the it, the I is the individual, the we is like the team shared mental model beliefs. And then the it is like structural stuff. And they were, everything was it stuff. It was like, how do we help you with your resume? How do we help you, um, you know, with a career fair and things like that. And then these programs started popping up to help and they were great. And that was like step one. Then it was sort of like, okay, we have this like structural stuff in place, but we need to actually like, talk to these guys about like how they interact with other people and like get them to understand that there's like a different language that people are using and the way that these people are interacting is different. It was very, we like, how do they all like fit into this system? And that was, I think a big, a big sort of unlock in this whole path of like transitioning veterans, but they were still missing the most important part. And that was the, the I part, the individual. And I think now they're starting to dig in deep into purpose and, core values and who you are. And that work is really hard. It's really hard. And, um, going on it alone is a very lonely process and they're doing a much better job now of getting veterans connected to people, even in these programs that are focused on transitioning to start thinking about themselves. And that, that for me, I would want to impress upon anyone listening to this, that a veteran transitioning or, you know, thinking about transitioning is a really hard, long process. I, I sort of talk about it in the, the lens of you're changing your entire mindset. I think being in, in a, a military unit that, you know, is any sort of chance to go into war has been in war. You have to take yourself into a combat mindset that sort of protects you. It, it's an, it's, it's, I, I believe it's an evolutionary place that we can go because that is how we have been a successful species against other tribes and people and also, you know, the elements and you're there thinking that you might die. You're there ready to do, you know, violent things to other people. 
you're there just sort of in this living in this this place that's quite severe and and i didn't know i was there i i remember one time some friends that were civilians were asking me like you know what was next for me in the military and i was like i hope i could go back go back to you know the middle east they're like wait what do you mean that you you want to go back to war and i'm like yeah of course like and it it was like a non thing to me that like your brain would be in a state where like you didn't want to go like that was just a natural thing and i remember i actually um my first job in in tech outside of consulting was at pinterest um that, that you know that the app where you you know say fantastic company yeah. yeah yeah it's a great company and you that's where i met you eric you you, yeah, you spoke there I remember and had a profound impact on my life but um i remember finding success there early but starting to actually come out of the combat mindset where all of a sudden i was like it seems really dangerous and scary just to go run into some bad person's house that has a gun trying to shoot you whereas before that was like a non-issue to me and i realized at that moment that the work that was happening at the individual level was starting to process what you were before in order to survive and how you navigated from that waypoint to the next waypoint up the mountain that was sort of coming out of that to see the world in a different way so that you could start to integrate into civilian life that was really all about an individual transformation right recognizing what that is naming it and saying okay that is something and, and that that's part of, I think, why staying connected with veterans is important too, because when you get past that barrier, right, on the other side to that that next waypoint where you're living a life where you're not worried about dying and going to do violent things and all this stuff, you know that you can go back with them and you can sort of like acknowledge that that place existed and it was okay. Because a lot of people struggle with the guilt from that place. They're like, I can't believe those things I thought about doing or did or whatever, but you were in a different place there as a as a way to survive in a really intense situation. And it's hard to reconcile that when you get to the other side and you're like, Oh my gosh, why was I thinking like that? Um, and you need people that you can go back with and talk about it to normalize that situation to some extent, because there's many, many generations of people that have had to go through that. And it's really, really freaking hard. But I, I think that what I'm seeing to answer your question directly here, and I'll wrap up on it is, what I'm seeing now is a focus on the individual to help these transitions, not just resumes and how to work in groups of people that are civilians and write emails. It's like, it's about you leaving a place that you were at that was a place you were there from a, a situation of survival to a new world and the work that comes with that as an individual. It's really hard. Wow. So it's, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I'm hearing is a little bit like when you talk about survival thinking, it's, it sounds like there's, I don't want to say trauma, but like it's a traumatic thing where you're in survival mode and you have to come out of that into, you know, kind of expanding your perspective in some way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think. And, and to understand <sighs> that, that, I, that, that the yeah. way you saw the world was a lens, even though you had to see the world that way to survive. But now you can you you have to expand and see it from a different perspective. That's exactly right, and I think you have to acknowledge that. I don't I don't know if this is a scientific thing or if this is the right way to articulate it, but I believe that in extended periods of time living in that mindset, it creates scar tissue. Maybe it's trauma right. scar tissue. I don't know, but you have to right. sort of be able to work through it to see that other other perspective. But at the same time you have to acknowledge that that existed. You can't right. run away from it. You, you know, you can't be ashamed of it. You have to just sort of own that that was a part of you. Take that part of you and integrate it to the next part and move on. I think a lot of times people hide from it. They run from it. They just want to compartmentalize it. And that's a, that in my experience with other veterans and talk to them becomes a dangerous thing. You have to address it. You have to face it. And you have to then figure out a way to take those things and integrate them into your life, the things that you learned over there. And hmm. yeah, that's fascinating. Find that new perspective. I mean, I'm relating to what you're talking about, even as a civilian, because like my dad's really sick right now. He's broke his hip and he's not doing too well. And I was talking to my friend how hard it is to see him in pain. And, and, and he said, uh, I said, in a way, you have to like compartmentalize to, to survive. And my friend said, well, you either part compartmentalize or you lean into it more. And that's what I think I'm hearing you say. Like, you, 
of course, we all survive with some compartmentalizing, but but really a healthier state is to to lean into it and and uh, put it in its place, right? That's right. Yeah. And some of that leaning into it is it's it you know it, it sounds sort of aggressive, but sometimes it's just talking about it. Right. Yeah. It's just and finding the space to talk about it. What about the purpose piece you just mentioned? When you're in the military, you know, you, you, I, I can imagine that you have a really clear sense of purpose. And then when you go into this civilian world, the purpose is fuzzier. Uh, so you, you had mentioned purpose. Is that an important piece of the equation? It's so important. You know, I, I think, um, Eric, I don't know what your purpose is, but I think you've accomplished some tremendous things and are finding ways to bring other tremendous stories of light to give people inspiration. And I, I imagine to some extent your purpose is within that. And it actually made me a little nervous coming on here because <laughs> it's just, a, it's a powerful, it's a powerful purpose. And, you know, you, you, I think everyone wants to live for a purpose that's meaningful. And, and in the military, it's sort of like, it's sort of like um, a purpose that you're, you're bought into but might not actually be your life's purpose. It's like we have a mission and, and we have other sub purposes around making sure that my team survives this and we, you know, do good for the world. Right. And I think it, it's sort of like a unavoidable purpose that is, exists there. And it's, it's, it's more mission than even purpose in some ways, but it, right. it's just so clear. It's so easy to just be like, okay, well, this is it. We don't die, win the mission, don't let any of your friends die. You know, like that's sort of the deal. And it's easy to sort of rally around that. And I think you can see in a lot of stressful situations when people have that sort of innate external factors creating purpose, there's a lot of amazing things that happen. But then you get out, and you're like, wait, what's my purpose? Just to make money, to survive? Like, I guess that could be a purpose. But you kind of find that becomes a little shallow and you're starting to look for things that really drive you. And I think that's an important journey that you need to go on as you transition. I think it's not just for veterans. I think there's a lot of people in the world that don't know what their purpose is. Mm -hmm. I had a, a, a really close friend um, who also works at Hover Ali and he shared something with me that I thought was really, really interesting there's a different paradigm shift about thinking about purpose and I'm sharing it because it helped me start to discover my purpose, Yeah, which I think can also change. Honestly, it can, can evolve over time. But he said, the purpose is the thing in your life that creates the most energy and drive for you. But a lot of times people assume that purpose has to be this sort of like noble selfless thing that you're doing. But it actually is something typically that you selfishly get a lot of enjoyment out of that selflessly helps other people. Mm. And I was like this sort of like light bulb moment for me where I kind of thought like, oh, if you have a purpose, it needs to be something noble. That's like all about service and like giving yourself up to something. But the reality is like there are things that I love doing that also help other people. And I could do them all day, right? I think for me sort of, coaching and mentoring people at work and jujitsu, like wherever I get lots of energy out of that. And I could do it all the time. I, you know, people hit me up on LinkedIn that are, have been in the military and I will take every single phone call selfishly. Cause I just, I, I, I get energy out of helping them. Mm. And it was an interesting way to sort of like start vectoring in on a purpose, sense of purpose. I think sometimes people manufacture a purpose. They think feels right. And it creates right. like a servitude to people, but it's not something I actually get a lot of energy out of and thus it doesn't stick. So I don't know. I, I think that yeah. purpose is probably one of those things that I would caution people is hard to get to the right answer on. It takes some time. It might take some testing and iterating on in your own life of like, what, what's giving me energy that I can just do, I can just do this forever. Right. And sometimes people get lucky, right? Like their purpose is creating music and, you know, enjoyment for people and they've found this sort of like trade and craft that they can also, you know, make a lot of money on. And sometimes it's the opposite way where the purpose is something you love, but you'll never be able to make a lot of money on it. But, but, but something within that, I think that driving factor is a really important thing to find in yourself and it will help you become a lot, a lot better person and much more happy. 
I imagine you see this a lot. Like I feel like you touched on something that is not just your experience, but a, a lot of people. Because I've heard this with our community. Uh, we had one uh, soldier, and uh, I connected him with a company, uh, like an association that does electrical stuff, and and they offered him a job. And he was like, "But I don't want to build electrical lines and and fix a, electric, you know, lines. I I don't want to do that." I, he he he. His uh, experience was so intense and charged with with purpose that he really struggled. You know, like wait, now I'm going to make toilet paper. You know what I mean? But yeah, but yeah. isn't it partly like a perspective thing? Where like I I've spoken at at companies that make toilet paper, and hey, we all use toilet paper. It's there's purpose in that too, right? So it in a way, it's sort of trying to figure out how to feel that purpose in what you're doing. Yeah. It's that's a really interesting thing. I have some I have some thoughts on Eric. I, I could this could be controversial here, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> I, I think I've I've really spent time with the people now transitioning, and then other folks just that that work for me that have sought purpose in the nature of the company they're working at. And I don't I don't think that's a bad thing but I've never seen it work out the way that people hoped it would. And what I mean by that is what inevitably become more important than if the company is doing some noble cause to save the world is what is the culture of the team? What are the people that you're working with like, and is purpose really at the level of toilet paper or is purpose something that comes from within you that you're trying to create? And I feel that a lot of people probably can actually live their purpose in any company right? if they truly know what their purpose is and they start digging into it. And if it really is a specific cause, great. But I think that fun, sometimes people try to tie their purpose to the nature of a company. And unless you're really saying like, you know, you had AJ on and I'm sure he was talking about bringing people over from Afghanistan like that, that can be a really unique purpose. That's sort of a nature of something. But aside from that type of stuff, I think it's very hard to find purpose through the nature of a company. And I've seen a lot of people chase it. And it I just haven't seen the success there because I think part of it, it's it's so much from within you, not from the nature of the work at a company, which you'll find out sometimes just all kinds of things inside of it that you didn't want to know that you thought were noble on the outside, but actually aren't on the inside. And all of a sudden now your identity is tied to this thing that's a house of cards. I don't know if that makes sense, but that, Matt, uh, that is yeah. so. Uh, I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you you discussed that because I, I agree 100. percent I think that's really true and authentic. So talk about some of some more of the differences. Uh, like okay, so I, you know, leading some of these, uh, what we call warrior programs at No Barriers. In the early days, I remember working with. Uh, the soldiers, when I say soldiers, I mean like all the branches. And um, we got in big trouble as civilians. It, it, it was funny, funny, like not funny, hilarious, like interesting funny, where like, for instance, we're going to go climb a peak and we're leaving at four in the morning. And, uh, you know, so we all get in different cars and we're heading to the mountain and we kind of do like a loose roll call, you know, and, and one of our uh, soldiers really freaked out on us he's like you guys are idiots you know you you do this loose roll call it's four in the morning it's totally dark like somebody could have fallen in a ditch and they could be dead and bleeding right now and and you guys don't even know who's in your cars you know or or another guy who was like no no i don't put my belt on my backpack because you need to keep the belt off so that you can get to your pack quickly and i'm like no no you're gonna kill your back dude if you don't put the waist belt on and he's like, no, no, we don't do it like that in the military. So there, wow. I imagine there's like a thousand examples like that, right? Where yeah. it's just little yeah. things that that are, are but, but, but become huge barriers uh, in, the, in that transition. Do, do you have some examples of that or thoughts on that? Well, the one um, funny thing that comes to mind around that is, you know, the, the, if you ever spend time with anyone in the, in the military and for folks in the military, I know this will resonate, but where you sit in a restaurant, have you ever seen right. this before? Like, um, yeah. I really get uncomfortable if 
my back is facing, if I'm facing a wall, my back is facing the rest of the people. I have to sort of like find the corner table, sit against the wall, looking out into the, into the restaurant. Yeah, I still do it. But I think, you know, I said this a little bit earlier. I, I think that that some of that stuff is okay. It's okay to integrate that into your life and sort of, it becomes almost like a, a token of, of like that, I don't know, maybe like a memento of what you used to do and who you are as a person. And you kind of, kind of, I have pride in that. I have pride in it. I think on a barrier part of it, there's a lot. I think, um, there's a certain level of vigilance that can, um, be very helpful in the military. Right. That can also become on the verge of paranoia in the civilian world. And that's one of those things too, that I think is a, is a, psychological journey that you have to go on to figure out how to, again, it's about, it's not about compartmentalizing or getting rid of it. It's about integrating a balanced version of vigilance into your life such that you can live without being paranoid at every corner of something terrible happening. Right. It's hard, but you can do it and you just have to work on it and talk about it and create the right constructs in your mind. And I encourage people to chat with, you know, professionals, therapists, um, but that is something I think I've seen a number of times and it, it's especially raw in the sort of people getting out recently. And I, I talked to a lot of people about that. It's one of the things I say, I said, listen, like, yeah, I can give you all the raw, raw speeches and tell you about how to talk to someone in an interview. But let me just tell you that when you get in the work environment, things are going to seem strange to you because you're unfamiliar with them and in the world that you come from strange things in combat mean put your sensors up and like get ready to defend you need to just understand that like not everyone's trying to like attack you at work right and you might have to just sort of like can tell yourself that over and over again as you work through things and try to find uh the true sense for what they're asking versus assuming that you're kind of being attacked and i think that happens a lot and i've heard some people come back to me and say that was really good advice because you come in and you read an email one way and you're like, we, we see this as civilians, right? And you're kind of like, what is this? But imagine being on like heightened sense of vigilance and reading some of the stuff that comes through and not knowing what it really means and creating your own version of that story and trying to get into defensive posture in your own brain about how you're going to, you know, navigate through all this. And meanwhile, this person's just sort of like, you know, sending a nice email to you that you know, right. you're just not aware of yet. You don't, you don't realize it. It, it. I don't know if that makes sense, but it makes a hundred percent sense. Yeah. Do you have to find ways, like new ways of connecting with people as well? Like, you know, one of the reasons I, we started No Barriers was to, to, to kind of to say like, look, I mean, you may be a vet and you may be a foster care kid. You may be a, a person with a physical challenge. You may be a first generation American, uh, you know, but challenge is challenge. Like we're all connected and we have to find those connection points. So do you have to work to find new connection points, you know, for instance, like with, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I've heard people say, you know, when you transition out of the military, it's the, the adversities are no longer bullets flying at you. It's, can I get my kid to soccer practice on time? And can I get home for that dance recital? And, um, you know, like maybe somebody had a tough childhood of their own, but in a totally different way. Like, do you have to work to do that? Yeah, you do. Um, I think just to reframe it for a second, I think that a lot of the military is about sort of removing emotions from work. Like you're not like, you know, you're doing the vehicle check-ins that you were just talking about and like everyone's on there, like airplane pilots just checking in on the vehicles. You're going to do stuff. Things are blowing up around you and it still sounds like the airplane airplane pilot, totally cool, calm (laughs) and collected. And like, you know, and I think that I remember when I, my, one of my first jobs as a manager, there was someone that um that that got you know separated from the company, let go, and the next day uh, the team, the much younger, sort of recently out of school, was like, "What happened to so and so?" I'm like, "Yeah, they got fired," and it wasn't someone that I fired; it was someone on another team. And I kind of remember this like they looked at me with like horror, like they were they were mortified because it was so emotionless and it was just right. a very like cold thing to say. But for me, again coming from a place where people like that's almost how like in a wartime environment, you know, 
you're losing people, right? And it's just sort of like you have to move on quickly. And that's sort of the mindset I was in, which is just totally sounds totally morbid right now saying that. But I, I, I remember like reflecting on it and being like, oh, I have removed emotion from my being. And, and, and that is actually now becoming a barrier to connecting with other people in, in an authentic way. And I, I, part of this whole journey too has been, and I still work on this a lot and I talk to my team about it openly. And I've gotten to the point where I can at least express to them that like, Hey, listen, I'm trying to connect with you by being a more authentic version of myself at work, which is really hard for me because I spent many years killing any sort of emotional side. Like the, the connection in the military is really powerful through like struggle and suffering. And yes, you, you know, you have a beer after something tragic happened and you kind of like hug each other. But most of the time, it's sort of like a very intense sort of vibe that you don't have in the corporate world. So for, for you asked the question about connection. I think it's sort of like bringing yourself and your emotional self into the equation to meet them sort of where they are. And right. finding that again is actually really hard. And it's very uncomfortable. I remember like trying to show vulnerability with my team, like, Hey, I've made a mistake and here's how I feel. And you know, that's something you need to do to build trust on teams. It's really important, but that's a, I felt like it was like something I was like, taking crazy pills for. I was like, I'm right. gonna, like, be very vulnerable with my team here, which is just not something I'd really ever done before. So, so I don't know if that, that, yeah, I don't know if that, that gets to what you're sort of asking. I think the connection no, a lot of times comes does. from, yeah, bringing yourself and emotions back into the conversation with people because that's, you know, civilians interact in that way. They expect work to have some element of realness to it. Yeah. So you mentor other vets and so forth. You take a lot of phone calls. If somebody's struggling with this process that you've experienced, where do you think they go? Like, are there resources? Are there some good places they can go? Are there some things they can reach out to? People they can reach out to? What do you? Th what's your advice there? Yeah. It depends. It depends on the nature of the struggle. Obviously, there's that's a pretty multidimensional. Yeah, you're right. That's like a too broad of a question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think I think people looking to transition. There's a bunch of great programs that start to introduce you to the corporate element. Um, one group that we work with closely here is called Breakline. Mm -hmm. They don't just help veterans; they help underrepresented groups. Um, and veterans, and they're just fantastic. And, you know, there's been a lot of groups that have popped up like that. But f for me, what I see with them are people that are extremely passionate and, and they are living their purpose in that organization. And they just, they work so hard to help people break through barriers. It really is a barrier thing. Well, Matt, thank you so much, man. This is honestly, I mean, I know it's not a competition, but this has been one of our best no barriers podcast it's been a totally fascinating discussion thank you for being so open and honest and articulate um you know discussing really your personal journey uh and i and i've learned a lot a ton personally and i know our community is going to learn a lot as well it's going to help a lot of people so thanks for the last hour yeah thanks for letting me come on and, and share this is um you know the transition from the military is a really hard thing and I don't know it's just grateful to be able to share some of my story if it help, can help other people and honored to be here with you and all the things that you've accomplished it's just tremendously inspiring for me from back from the first time I heard you talk when I was at Pinterest to the time at Hover it's just um, yeah I feel like I'm standing amongst some giants here so thank you for that Matt thank you so much and good luck on the Baja 1000 and uh, hopefully we, maybe when I'm in the Bay Area, yeah. we can uh, get together, go to the Rock Gym, uh, do something fun together, all right? Sounds like a plan. All right. Thanks, friend. And no barriers to everyone. I hope everyone will come to our August No Barriers Summit, www.nobarriersusa.org. Come check out our two amazing events this summer. See you guys. production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Jonk, that's me, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Kotman, marketing and graphics support from Stone Lord, and web support by Jamlo. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. 
If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. That's nobarrierspodcast.com. There's also a link to shoot me an email with any suggestions for this show or any ideas you've got at all. Thanks so much and have a great day. See the light, I catch you.